This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello, you. Have you got some kind of soft focus on your webcam this week? Well, you know, just just for you, I thought I'd slip into something more ambient. You've been rubbing Vaseline on the lens. It's special. Sort of, we're recording late at night, so it's a, sort of, it's a nice thing for you. Well, thank you very much. I didn't want a harsh light. It's not unappreciated. Oh, good. Can I ask you about a dilemma? Marital dilemma. Yes. So at the weekend, we went to a farm and, and not one of the ones where you're confronted with the pre-slaughterhouse nature of things. I think Jean is a bit young for Exactly. That. It's, it's one of the ones where animals live a, a life of quiet yeah. dignity while it's being gawped at by children. Um, so we don't drive. And, to, and yes. to get there, it involved a train journey of about half an hour. Yes. And then a lovely 35-minute walk through a nature reserve. Yes. And then about five minutes along a B road, and then a little lane down to the farm. Does any part of that walk sound problematic to you? The B road? Oh, it does. <laughs> because my wife seemed to think it was very irresponsible of me to take our little family walking along a country road with no pavement whilst articulated lorries came hurtling around bends. But... I, I thought people did that on B oh, roads. Oh, no, it didn't. Sorry, I mean, you weren't, I only just, when I said, pro, when you said problematic, I just, that was just the obvious thing that didn't sound very quiet. Right. But do you think it's a strange thing to do? Because I, I think it is not contravening the highway code as long as you face the oncoming traffic. Do, do I really want to adjudicate on this? You think there's no chance that Sarah's going to be listening? No chance in the world. Right, okay. I feel like if the boot had been on the other foot... You might also have complained. But I wouldn't have suggested that there, there was anything inherently at fault about walking on a country road. Isn't it just a... I mean, the thing is, I think maybe just... Well, sometimes these things are just a product of irritation. <laughs> Don't you think? She probably just was thinking, oh, God, I wish we could get there. It just feels quite long. And now there's, like, articulated lorries. There was one point at which she had her son in front of her. Not like a human shield, but she, she was shielding him by putting her arms across him. Yeah. And I thought... If something did come hurtling into us, I'm, I'm not sure that that would be the barrier that you think it might so be. So basically, she irritated you because you thought she was just being melodramatic. And I'll tell you what else I thought. 
Americans, they can't conceive of car-free life. So you then took it to a sort of national stereotype, I <laughs> noticed. Your response to being kind of potentially in the wrong, I'm not saying you were in the wrong, was then to sort of cast a whole <laughs> stereotype about Americans. But come on, when you're out and about in Doncaster North, sometimes you're on a country lane. Do you not see a friendly hiker every now and again? I mean, Justine and I did go for this bike ride in the countryside a few weeks ago, and it was quite a busy road, although she didn't complain about the busy road. She complained about the fact that the bike ride was far too long and much longer than I had. And I'd sort of said it was 10 kilometres to this coffee shop in the countryside, and it was 10 kilometres, but I took her on the sort of round trip, which took 28 kilometres in all. Oh, so it was 10 kilometres as the crow flies? Well, no, it, it would have been 10 kilometres there and back, but I went on the round trip, so I added a third to the journey. Still struggling with your calculations a bit there. This is like one of those things where it turns out that an 18-inch pizza is, is, is more pizza surface area than two 12-inch. Have I just got the maths wrong here? What's your point here? I don't know. It's making my head spin. Was it worth it, though? It was actually quite a nice bike ride. But the cafe... That- yeah, it was nice, really nice. The cafe actually cheered Justine up. Uh-huh. The the cafe at the farm had, any- had the opposite effect on Sarah. But then, of course, there is the psychology of having to do it all the way- all over again. Oh, we, we got a taxi. Right, OK. <laughs> How long did the bad mood last? I wouldn't say it's over. Oh, no, come on. Now... I think the time is near. It is. We're loading up the van. We're loading up the van. The, the roadies, is that right? Yep. The roadies are ready. Yes, they are. Travelling by train, of course. We are going to be at Stratford-upon-Avon on Saturday, June the 3rd, 2pm at the Royal Shakespeare Theatre. Yes, as part of RSC Live, which is a brilliant festival. As part of RSC Live. It's going to be great. We're talking about climate education. We've got fantastic guests it's just going to be really interesting and entertaining yeah and and possibly our only live show this year so please come along possibly our only live show this year this week we are getting down to business and talking about how lots of companies these days aren't about making a profit at any cost we're inspired by the story of patagonia declaring that the earth is now our only shareholder and we wanted to ask how effective this model is and whether others were also thinking along similar lines. We're going to be talking to Joanna Allen about some changes to UK law that would encourage more purposeful business, to Charles Conn from Patagonia all about their new model to give all the profits to the planet and to Jamal Ezel, the founder of Change Please, a social enterprise tackling homelessness through coffee. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful, it sort of applies to you as well. I know you don't like the humble brags, but this is not so much a humble brag as we can feel good that we did something good. So I met somebody last week whose name is Billy Knowles. Billy Knowles is the program director for something called the Youth Environmental Service. The Youth Environmental Service is something that Billy Knowles set up Because he listened to our podcast. Oh, wow. And heard about the idea. And 90-something young people are doing good environmental service things all around the country. That's fantastic. We've got a legacy. Yeah. Wonderful. Isn't that great? Yeah. I'm chuffed about that. And Billy's offered me the opportunity to meet the young people. And if you play your cards right and you don't say that I'm in Loserville, bracket C, last week's episode, oh, no. then, then you might get invited along. 
<laughs> so there you go. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, that's brilliant. I love that. And I think we should give credit, I think, to Martin Moore who was the guest who talked about it on our programme. No, I don't, I don't want to be sharing the credit with Martin Moore. Well, he doesn't get to come along to meet the young people, but okay. he just gets some credit. Okay. Uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? We are going to have a Yes Day. So Jean was watching some film the other day called Yes Day, where the kids are fed up of being told no by their parents. So the, the parents agree to a Yes Day. I think there are certain caveats. Do they have working on B-roads? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm quite excited. So what does that mean? You have to say yes to everything he asks? Yes. What's his side of the bargain? Well, I've told him it can't involve a lot of travel and it can't involve buying things. You think that's too restrictive, don't you? No, I think it would be interesting. I think, doesn't he get like 10 yeses or something? I mean, is he unlimited? Unlimited yeses on yesterday. Wow, amazing. I look forward to hearing how yesterday goes. Yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far away. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So to start the conversation, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Joanna Allen, who is CEO of Grey's, a snack company, and a registered B Corp. Thanks so much for joining us, Joanna. Thank you, Ed, for having me. First of all, how did you get into Grey's? Talk to us about the story of it. So Grey's was founded back in 2008, originally a direct consumer business, and then it exploded onto the retail scene in 2015. And in 2019, Unilever, a business broadly recognised for being a very kind of purpose-driven organisation, acquired the Grey's business. And I joined the business a year after the acquisition. I had been in Unilever's core business prior to that. And I joined what is now three years ago to take Grey's on its onward journey. And what was your background before that? Prior to that, I had always been a marketeer and had spent my career through Coca-Cola, both in the UK and in the US. And then, as I said, had joined Unilever to run originally their Hellman's business globally. And then I moved into their personal care division. And I guess the experiences that I have brought into Grays is really that experience of, of running a business that is still scaling up and is scaling across multiple channels in terms of how we go to market. Grays is best known for its direct-to-consumer box, as I said, how the business started, but now has very broad distribution, and we're also starting to expand the business internationally as well. And I said at the outset that Grays is a B Corp. What makes it a B Corp? B Corp is something we talked about in an episode back in 2020, but what got you that kind of certification Yeah. So for anyone who maybe isn't so familiar, B Corp is an external accreditation that recognises that you're a business that holds yourself to a higher standard, particularly around your contribution, not just from profit, but also from your impact on society and on planet. And Grays has always been, it's always existed to bring more nutritious, tasty snacks to a market which is dominated by frankly, let's face it, some pretty unhealthy choices. And so B Corp and securing that accreditation was really recognition that actually we're very much a purpose-driven business. We have getting people to eat more nutritiously at the very core of what we do. But B Corp assesses you not just on that aspect of your business, but also how do you treat your workers? What do you manage your environmental footprint as? What's your legal governance? And it's because of that, actually, that we became also supporters of the Better Business Act. And we'll come on to the Better Business Act in a minute. Just on the B Corp certification, you said how you treat your workers. Does that mean you have to pay the living wage? What, what, what's the sort of requirement for that? 
Yeah, so Grays is a living wage accredited employer, which means that we pay what we believe and what the Living Wage Foundation believes is a living wage that's appropriate for people to be sustained on. It's higher than the minimum wage. And as a business that runs quite a large manufacturing operation, um, we believe that that was really important to ensure that all of our workers were able to be operating on a, on a sustaining wage. But it's also things like the fact that we have maternity and paternity policies. We support individuals going through IV or dealing with miscarriages. We give our employees the opportunity to have a day every year volunteering because we recognise that it's really important that we contribute within our community. Um, So you can be judged to B Corp on many different aspects, but those would be the the most important ones to us as, as we think about our work as our employees. It is an interesting question about B Corp because there's been some criticism recently, for example, that some some smaller producers, I think, pr- criticised Nes- Nespresso's certification as a B Corp. Uh, without getting into, I'm not asking you to sort of answer for a particular company that's not yours, but how do you think about the sort of balance between making the sort of B Corp brand so kind of broad enough that it kind of includes a kind of sufficient number of companies to be a kind of proper movement, but being so broad that anyone can get into it? Absolutely. I think anyone who has become a B Corp has really appreciated the rigour of the B Corp assessment. And it is demanding and there is an enormous amount of effort that businesses put into securing that accreditation. And I think as soon as you've become a B Corp, you respect that level of rigour. I recognise that for B Corp to really shift how business is done, that has to, be ha- that has to happen at scale. Um, And what is particularly important is that that doesn't only happen with a kind of a more narrow profile of business, but has businesses that also encompass a a broad manufacturing footprint. Because if we want to have the impact that we want to have around climate impact, climate change, you know, you have got to have the businesses involved that are manufacturing at scale and having that most material impact. So, I am a believer, I'm an advocate for B Corp becoming broader. I know there are individuals within the community who who challenge that. But I think if we want to see the scale of change that we must have, actually scale is an important aspect of how B Corp must move forward. How do you go broad without compromising the standard? Yeah, so um, B Lab, which is the kind of the um, organisation that drives B Corp forward, is, is looking at the standards and actually they are evolving Today, there are the five pillars of B Corp and and you might be amazing at something and maybe slightly less proficient at another area. And as long as you meet the the threshold of 80 points, you become a B Corp. The future standards are saying, actually, there needs to be a kind of foundational level across all of the pillars. And then you might be, you know, then exceptional best in the world for for one particular area. But they recognise that as a B Corp community, we want to continue to make sure that those standards are being raised. And that's one of the drivers of the new standards for becoming a B Corp in the future. And I think it's important to remember, right, once you become a B Corp, you still have to recertify every three years. It's not that you get that badge and, and that's it for forever. Now, the very fact that we're talking about this is perhaps significant in itself. I mean, what do you think about the shift in business that is going on towards this more purpose-driven way of doing business? And, and, a bit, and we'll obviously come on to the Better Business Act in a moment. I think it's much needed. And perhaps, obviously, I'm biased and I'm a big supporter of it. When we look at the, the crises that we are confronted by, 
the climate crisis, the obesity crisis, the cost of living crisis, I think it is crucial that business plays a role in addressing those issues of the day. But I think also importantly, you see a growing number of the public who also have an expectation that business will play their role. 77% of people now say that businesses should have a legal responsibility towards people and planet, and that is only growing. So I think, you know, people demand it, the, the crises that we're confronted by requires it. And importantly, if you look at the businesses that are performing, the businesses that are securing investment, they are typically now the businesses that are purposeful. So I really believe that for British business to be on the front foot of securing that investment, attracting amazing talent, driving the highest levels of growth, we must do that um, with a broader set of stakeholders that we consider. Is B Corp mainly about corporate reputation at the moment or does it get you more customers, do you think? I mean, presumably it's not yet well known enough that it gets you people say, I'm going to buy from this place because they're a B Corp. Certainly, we would recognise, right, B Corp is not as well known as, as some things like maybe Rainforest Alliance is a, a good example or Fair Trade. It is growing. And I think for those consumers who are really engaged in understanding what the impact is that they're having from their consumption of things, it's an important reference point. But I think it, it then enables us to have great quality conversations across our supplier base, our customer base, and particularly as we attract talent, right? Being a B Corp is one of the top three reasons that Greys attracts brilliant talent into our business, particularly younger generations, right? They want to be working for a sustainable or purpose-driven business. And so for me, it, it is a brilliant asset attracting the very best talent to come and work for our business. Now then, let's talk about the Better Business Act, because this is about a, a, a change in the law, which the supporters of the Better Business Act are trying to bring about? Do you want to just explain it to our listeners? Absolutely. So we are seeking, as the Bitter Business Act Coalition, an amendment to Section 172 of the Companies Act. And so what does that mean? So um, today there is a fiduciary duty for a company director to put shareholder return ahead of all other areas of, of responsible business. And we believe that that is outdated. We believe it is important for company directors to have the responsibility to consider shareholder return and advancing that alongside the impact that a business will have on society and on the environment. And so amending Section 172 would recognise that only managing a business for profit return is no longer the most appropriate way for businesses, can often be quite short term. We believe that it needs to be a default change that all businesses adhere to, not just the businesses that are already kind of in the leading front of, um, of driving sustainable business like many of the B Corps are. And I think we featured this a few years back, the Better Business Act idea. How much momentum has it gained in the business community, would you say? Yeah, so we have a, a coalition of over 2,000 British businesses who have supported the, the coalition, who are backing that change. And what I think is really compelling is that it is at a complete cross-section. You have local firms, you've got Britain's best-loved brands, you've got publicly listed companies who are backing that. And across 
all aspects of kind of British industry. So over 2,000 companies are calling for this, and that is only growing um, in terms of momentum. And just so our listeners understand it, and you've explained it really well, but what do you think difference do you think it would make in practice for companies in their day-to-day decision-making? So I believe it's about making sure that as um, responsible leaders of our businesses, that we are considering planet and societal impact alongside profit. It's that thoughtfulness of, is this a choice that I want to make because actually that will deliver a profitable return? But is there a way that I can do that that actually limits the negative environmental impact or actually provides a, a positive societal impact? It's about raising that awareness of considering multiple stakeholders rather than simply the profit return that you might get as we run our business. And I think that's a really powerful uh, shift for British business to be on the front foot of. Now, in a way, we, we, we're talking about the movement for this kind of change. I think it's fair to say that in the last year or two, there's also been a sort of movement against it. We've seen a, a, a sort of particularly in the United States, a kind of whole casting of doubt on the whole uh, ESG principles, uh, you know, that that this is sort of not really the right sort of capitalism and all that. I mean, where do you assess that sort of backlash and how do you think it's best countered? So I think one of the benefits of of what we're proposing with the Better Business Act is the fact that it becomes by default change. Um, because there are some that would argue that, well, this is the natural evolution, right? If, you're, if your argument for this is that businesses that are purposeful are growing ahead of the rest of the market, are securing investment ahead of the market, then by nature, evolution will mean that that becomes more of, of the market. And that's right, but we are confronted by a climate crisis, an obesity crisis, a cost of living crisis. And I believe that means that we should move at pace. We should go faster. Now, is there an opportunity for us to have more consistent ESG reporting? Absolutely. And I think many within the B Corp and the BBA coalition would welcome that from British businesses so that there is that more consistent playing field. But I don't think the absence of that should stop us making this sort of aspect of progress. And the American revolt against ESG principles, you know, I think pressure's been put on different American firms about ESG. It's become a sort of party political dividing line in the US between the Republicans and Democrats. That doesn't seem to be happening here in the same way, does it? No, and I think the the BBA has got cross-party support, which I think is really positive. It recognises that it's not a kind of politically driven shift that we're trying to make. Now, ultimately, I still think, you know, it is fair that when greenwashing is perceived, it should be challenged. I think that's a really positive conversation for us to be having within industry. Um, But I don't believe that the BBA is, is seeking to condone that. I believe it will, again, continue just to drive that conversation forward. But, you know, that's a healthy debate for us to have, for sure. And where would you assess the public is on all of this? As I mentioned, you know, you're seeing a vast majority of the public saying we recognise that business has to play a role. I think whether it's that or we saw another great report from the Edelman Trust Barometer, which recognises actually that there is great trust in business to do the right thing. There is desire for business to be involved. You know, I think these challenges that we're confronted by are too big for any one 
element of society to confront, right? I think it has to be a collaborative effort. Business absolutely should play its role. You know, we are the primary employer um, of, of great talent within the UK. And, and actually for us to be succeeding by driving a positive impact for our people, for society, for the environment um, should be something that's endorsed. Let me ask you a sort of more personal question. So people will have seen your product, I'm, I'm pretty sure, in the shops and so on. Just to sort of connect it back to you, what's the hardest thing about your job? You know, Grays is, we exist to make snacking a positive choice. And I think if I think about just my business, you know, you might walk into a, a supermarket or into a petrol station and often you are confronted by an array of choices which are anything but good nutrition. And so continuing to challenge, how do we make this a really positive choice for shoppers? How do we make it a choice that is compelling for retailers to also back because they're backing the businesses that are helping them win as well? Um, you know, that that is a long-term journey that we're on at Gray's and Every day gives us an opportunity to remind people that you don't have to make a compromise between really nutritious products that you can snack on and then something that feels tasty and indulgence. That's a good challenge for us to walk into. In in the absence of Jeff, who generally pokes fun at my business ideas, let me try something on you. So I really agree with you about the sort of problem of kind of the unhealthy snacks problem. My big beef is if beef is the right word is about the machines, the confectionery machines, because the confectionery machines always have really, really unhealthy stuff in them. And I have tried on various people, could we have fresh fruit machines? What's to be... Because these machines are everywhere. Hospital... You're meaning like vending machines? Yeah, 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 yeah. Re hospitals, railway stations, goodness knows where. Now, I've, I've tried this healthy fruit, vegetables machine on various people who who just guffawed and said it was sort of it's a complete non-starter and you know the bananas would go rotten and goodness knows what <laughs> give me give me your kind of you know high i want some high level response don't feel you've got to be polite to me here <laughs> so i completely agree and the aspect of vending machines often have the very worst of our industry's offering to, to consumers. I think there is a great challenge in what you're presenting of how do you offer great nutrition, but then a complement to it is how do you end up not creating a load of food waste, right? Because that's also a challenge. But there are plenty of businesses who are offering good nutrition, you know, brands that are um, really valuable peers to graze alongside graze, where we can challenge that convention of, you know, poor nutrition, but without creating an issue around food waste because you're going to have a banana that goes brown in a vending machine. I am right, aren't I, that the vending machine thing is an un totally uncracked problem. I mean, you know, you can find healthier snacks in shops now, um, um, but but the vending machines, it's much more, more limited choice. Absolutely. And I think, you know, snacking is a it's an impulse business, right? You you don't plan your snacks for the day or there aren't very many people who do. It's something that you kind of you have a, an impulsive desire for and you want to go and meet that need. Right. And so that means that actually great nutritious snacks should be as available as all of the rubbish that's out there. And that's one of the sort of mandates I give my commercial team, which is, you know, for every place that there's a 
crap snack, I want to I want to graze as well, because you should be giving consumers the opportunity to make that choice as opposed to only presenting them with something that's poor from a nutritional perspective. And then you end up fulfilling that need, but with a really poor choice. And just because our listeners might be wondering this, how do you make sure that what you're selling does meet the nutritious standard? You know, what, what's your way of achieving that? Absolutely. So um, we have set a threshold. Every single gray snack must offer a a nutritional benefit and a meaningful one. So actually, like one of the best example is, you know, across the British population, most of us don't eat enough fiber. But often when we think about fiber, we think about things that don't feel tasty and nutritious. Um, so we have a product called Oat Boosts. Um, all of those offer great fiber for people. So again, it's about good choices, good nutrition, and, and that's a threshold that we put on all of our products. The, all of our products are vegetarian, um, over 50% are vegan, they're all giving you really great variety in terms of nuts, seeds, um, whole grains, you know, all of the things that we probably don't get enough of. And that has always been in Grays's DNA. Um, and even with the recent HFSS legislation around, you know, high fat, salt and sugar products, you know, all of our retail range um, has been designed to be compliant to that. So that, you know, again, for retailers, as they're thinking about how do I put you know, good nutritious snacks in front of people and don't just present them with more chocolate, more confectionery, more crisps, you know, that actually range shouldn't be the reason why they can't do that. Last question for me, Joanna. You talked eloquently about the Better Business Act. How can our listeners get involved and support that if they like the sound of it? Absolutely. So just um, search the Better Business Act and you'll find our website. And within that, that's got all of the information that you might need to join the coalition if you lead your own business. Or if you don't, then go and hound the person who does, give them the information and then get involved. Um, there's plenty of events. We would also encourage all of your listeners to write to their MPs to encourage them also to understand more about the Better Business Act as well. Well, look, Joanna, it's been really great to talk to you. Thank you for not being too rude about my vending machine idea. And thanks for sparing the time. Absolute pleasure. So let's talk to Charles Conn, who is the board chair of Patagonia and joins us now. Charles, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Just before we get into Patagonia uh, as a company, tell us about your involvement in Patagonia. How did you get involved how did you become the board chair which sounds like a very good gig don't you think jeff <laughs> yeah chairman of the board yeah yeah i bet he gets some nice merch as the chairman of the board <laughs> that's the truth <laughs> no that is the truth you're in it for the merch the good swag as we say <laughs> yeah i met yvonne many years ago believe it or not fishing in british columbia we had a common friend uh, who's now gone this is yvonne Schwinard. who is the founder of patagonia that's right now 50 years of patagonia this year wow fact, yeah we became friends, mostly uh, through fishing and conservation interests, and then I joined the board well, quite a long time ago now. And uh, yes, it is a, uh, a fantastic title, but I think it's really just because Yvonne didn't want to do it anymore. T tell us a bit about the ethos of Patagonia as a company. Yeah, I mean, for a very, very long time, the ethos of the company has been about conservation and about respect for nature. I mean, you know, the company is based in outdoor goods, and I think... Starting all the way back in the 70s, Yvonne realized that pitons, which was the original business of the company, which are the protection you put in rocks when you're rock climbing, were damaging the rock. Uh -huh. And so they led that first revolution, um, which was to design protections for rock climbers that didn't damage the rock. 
And then over time, the consciousness of Yvonne and his family grew, and the company became more and more about conservation. So for a long time, the mission of the company has been to make the best, to make the best gear, do the least harm, and use this, the power of business to fight the environmental crisis. Back in, in 2018, Yvonne changed all that, and he said, now, now we're in business to save the home planet. And that gives you a little bit of a sense for the ethos of the place. It's like an activist organization that it also makes great gear. And what does that look like in, in practice? So Patagonia has always donated 1% of sales to environmental and conservation work. It's a step up from that. Yeah, that's right. Since the 80s, um, Yvonne um, started that with a friend, that program 1%. Now 5,000 organizations are part of 1%. And it's made a big commitment over time. And the family has as well. And I think this was the idea here was if, if our mission is to be in business to save the home planet, how can we take that to the next level? And the next level is, I've got the quote here, Earth is our only shareholder. That's right. So talk us through that a little. Yeah. Well, you know, over the course of the last couple of years, Yvonne asked us uh, on the board, how do we plan for when I'm gone? What's the next step for a company like us? And of course, we looked at all the things that people look at and investment bankers would tell you to look at. Should we go public and keep controlling interest and then distribute the money? Should we take a big interest from private equity and use the money to fight climate change? There is two wonderful uh, kids who are part of this. They also really wanted their dad to be the one who made the decision. And he said, look, there are two criteria. How do we make sure that Patagonia continues to be the activist and iconoclastic organization that it is? And how do we give much more money to fight the dual environmental crises of climate change and species eradication? And that's how we came up with this plan to donate all the shares to the planet. And just explain what that means in practice. Yeah. So all the shares have been transferred and are held by two groups. One group is called a Perpetual Purpose Trust that has the voting shares that make sure that the mission of Patagonia stays true forever. And the second is in uh, U.S. parlance, a C4, which is a kind of charitable trust that can give away money and do activism at the same time. So essentially, all of the cash flows from Patagonia that aren't required to be reinvested in the business are now available to fight the environmental crisis. But it's still for, for profit. It's not an, an... The company is, yeah. yeah. But now the company's separate um, from the ownership, and, but the company remains a vigorous competitor. We, you know, we wake up every morning wanting to, wanting to beat the competitors, but remembering that the earth is our shareholder. And we're talking about a substantial sum of money each year then that will go to these environmental causes, yeah? Yeah. Initially, that's $100 million US dollars a year, which is a pretty good chunk of change. It would make us uh, amongst the biggest environmental uh, grant makers anywhere. And we hope over time, of course, that will grow. And what will you be doing with that money? The family has a, a number of conservation uh, interests, and those really focus on saving the last great places, especially those that are big carbon sinks. So one of the first projects is one called Peninsula Mitre, which is the very, think of the very, very tip of Argentinian Patagonia, Tierra del Fuego. There's a new park there of 700,000 acres of land and 500,000 acres of water, including huge kelp forests. So that's one of the first projects. Another one is the Viosa River in Albania. So free-flowing rivers is one of the great passions. And a third passion area would be regenerative agriculture. About two-thirds of the uh, surface of the earth is used to grow things we eat or to grow things for things we eat. And of course, that's one of the major contributors. Can I ask, as, as you know, as a chair, 
you must be meeting uh, a lot of people in similar positions in different organizations, executives, investors, and so on. What is their reaction when you tell them about this shift in focus? Are they easily persuaded? Yeah, well, I think it was uh, a shock to everybody. You know, some billionaires had made the Bill Gates pledge, which is to give away half their money. Of course, what what Yvonne said was half. Uh, I think we can do better. Um, and so I think people were shocked initially. What I'm really excited to see is that a number of organizations have al- already followed the lead. So Michael Bloomberg, who has a much bigger fortune, uh, in excess of $60 billion, has also pledged to give uh, uh, the entire flows from his company for his charitable foundation. So we hope this catches on. If we could create a new model of capitalism where the flows of capitalism are devoted to making the world a better place, uh, that would be a good thing. So talk to us, because there is a debate, isn't there, about the way clothes are produced, fast fashion and all of that. You're obviously still a for-profit company, as you said, and in a sense, you know, the more profit you generate, the more it's going to go to help the environment. Apart from the environmental, the philanthropy of, of giving away the profits, are there ways that you think about the way you produce things and, and all of that? Of course. And we always have. I mean, uh, the fashion and clothing in general accounts for about 7% of the contribution to climate change. So it's pretty substantial. And we're very much against the kind of fast fashion that you described. Um, So from very early on, we've been trying to measure our footprint from each garment that we produce and then to reduce that footprint. So that could be in carbon terms. It could be in water terms. It could be in use of dangerous chemistries or virgin fibers, um, all of which we have moved away from over time to the point where we're out of almost everything. By 2025, we won't have any fiber that is not um, regenerative agriculture or recycled. And there's obviously a big wider debate in the business community about ESG, about B Corp, and just about the sort of role of business. What is the precedent that you hope that the Patagonia approach sets? Well, I should start by saying we're huge fans of the B Corp and Benefit Corporation idea. I mean, the idea that you can build into the charter of companies purposes other than just making money is really powerful and important because it sets um, companies the challenge of what are the goals that are other than making money and how do we take responsibility to the communities that we operate in in every sense of the word. We think, of course, you can go much further um, and We think companies uh, need to have a purpose and they need to declare what that purpose is. And that purpose ought to include what they hope for for their teams, for their staff, what they hope for the communities in which they operate, and what their commitments are to the planet. And we think it's really important that companies make that kind of a commitment. Do you have companies which are in any way a template for where you want to be? I wish there were more out there, to be honest with you, Jeff. I think... There are many companies we admire, including some big companies. It's remarkable that a company the size of Unilever, which has been around for more than 100 years, is as good as it is. So we're especially impressed when big companies, and especially big companies that have public shareholders, have the courage to make these kinds of commitments. Just to sort of be slightly more challenging, presumably the the great advantage of Patagonia is it's got essentially one shareholder owner who has decided to make the earth the shareholder owner. The ownership structure of other companies is just very, very different. In the sort of fossil fuel business, your shareholders are saying, we want profits from fossil fuels. So how do you think about that that question, the, the, the kind of unique circumstances or, or unusual circumstances of Patagonia as compared to 
companies that have a, have a more common ownership structure. Sure. So because we have a single shareholder, we were able to go further than many companies. That doesn't mean you can't start down this path and do good things. MasterCard is a giant company that's 9% owned by a charitable foundation. That foundation gives away more than a billion a year doing really good things. So we can all start down this path. I, and, I, and I think uh, there are many fossil fuel companies that are beginning to take seriously how they move to net zero. And I, I think we need to push everybody in that direction. So I, I don't think this special case of a privately owned company that has a radical activist um, intent should stop other people from starting down this path. What's the hardest thing about being the board chair? Obviously, about having to choose between the different merch offers that you have. But it's swag, Ed. Yeah, swag, sorry. What's the biggest challenge? You know, I think this will sound funny, but waking up every day and trying to see every business decision through the lens of our new shareholder is a different mindset than I've ever approached business before. To see things through this new lens, which is what's the best decision on behalf of the planet? Even around things like what's our current inventory and what's our balance between wholesale and retail and online, I think that's hard. So is that like a stress test you apply to everything, like right the way down the chain? Yeah. Not just the profits you give away, in other words. No, giving away money is really hard. And I think most people wouldn't think that until you actually have to do it. But no, the hardest thing is how do we run the business now? We've always tried to be a responsible company. But now, in a way, you've got the earth breathing down your neck or looking over your shoulder and asking, is that really the right call for us? I mean, it's interesting because on this podcast, we've talked before, and I think Jeff and I are big fans of the something in the, the government of Wales introduced called the Future Generations Act. Yes, that's exactly what I was just thinking about. Yeah. Which, you know, is in a way a version of what you're saying. Yeah. And I'm, I, I love that idea. And I think, you know, th- and of course, you, you, when you guys talked about Rawls recently, you were talking partly about future generations because there's this sustainability element there. Capitalism is a terrible thing. It just happens to be better than the other ways of organizing economies so far. But while it generates incredible wealth and incredible innovation, it does a really lousy job with distribution and an even worse job at intergenerational distribution. And as you think about Patagonia sort of going forward in the five-year, 10-year view, what are your aspirations for it? Yeah. So, um, you know, as a, as a business, uh, we hope to continue to make the best gear for outdoor pursuits and to encourage more and more people to be in nature. But what we hope is that our way of thinking about things, this future way of thinking about things catches on. Um, and so we're, we're, we published everything about what we did. We published how the structure works. We hope that it catches on with other businesses and with, with other business owners so that we have a chance. Can I just ask, the, the, there is a fleece that I used to see a lot around <laughs> 1990. I'm seeing it all the time again now with these hipsters in East London. How did that happen? What's amazing is all that stuff has come back around. So yeah. I hope you didn't throw yours away. The weird thing is I didn't know they'd gone out of fashion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should get out more. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jeff uh, says that a lot, actually, Charles. <laughs> well, look, Charles, it's really important what you're doing. And we really, really are interested in, in, in the Patagonia model and what it does. So thanks so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you both. All right. With us now is Jamal Azel. Hello, Jamal. Hi there, Jeff. Hi, Ed. Jamal is the founder of Change Please, which we're, we're going to talk about imminently. But before we do, we just need to calm Ed down because you're getting very excited about all the coffee roasting kit in the background. Jamal has a 
spectacular coffee roaster behind him, which he says can hate up to about 200 degrees centigrade. Celsius. Um, or Celsius, as Jeff <laughs> Or anybody say. under the age of 90. Jamal, what is... So, go on, tell us about these coffee roasters. What do they do? So, we're, we're a not-for-profit social enterprise, and we tackle homelessness through coffee. Uh, and essentially roasting coffee, selling it to corporates, selling it uh, in our retail sites across the country is a really key component of how we tackle homelessness uh, and how we educate people to upskill them, to give them new opportunities and new jobs. And I'll explain more about that later. But the, yeah, the, the roasting kit I have behind me is uh, a state-of-the-art Gieson coffee roaster, which we had to import and uh, it fit through our academy site by literally two millimetres. So we just squeezed it in and it essentially roasts green coffee which we import from brazil from colombia from kenya peru working with farms that are supporting socially disadvantaged farmers so one in peru that supports women who are victims of domestic abuse another one in tanzania that supports landmine victims for example and the coffee's imported we roast the beans from green green beans into what you traditionally know as coffee which is your brown bean which goes into your uh, grinder and into your cup at the end of the day well, it's a, it's a very exciting-looking piece of kit. It really is. It looks like it could be in the engine room of a, a submarine. How do you take your coffee, Jamal? Me, I have a, I have a flat white. I don't really uh, tell many people this, so I'm uh, telling you in a secret. We, 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 we are in eight countries supporting governments in different markets, and I set up Change Peace at the age of 29, and I had only drunk one coffee in my lifetime before that. How did the idea come about? Yeah, so my, my parents are refugees and uh, came to the UK from, from Cyprus where? during the war in 1976. Um, and right. they, uh, the focus for them and for me was, as I was growing up was having kind of financial security. So they sacrificed a lot. I went to a good private school and, and ended up being a commodity uh, broker. And at the age of 29, thinking I had my dream job, I actually had a, a midlife crisis, a breakdown. And my partner was traveling at the time around the world and I was joining her in different countries. And one of those was in Vietnam. It was this 18 hour bus journey going from Ho Chi Minh City up through Vietnam. And this American traveler jumped on onto the bus next to me. I pretended to be British, quite reserved, to get myself to myself. And, and we got chatting and he said, look, if you're not happy with your job or your life, you should do the rocking chair test. So that's to imagine sitting in your rocking chair at the age of 90, looking back on your life thinking, what have you achieved? What's your legacy on the world? Have you left the world in a better place? How are your children gonna speak about you when you're not here? You know, what's this whole life thing been about? A few weeks later, we, we stumbled across this silent tea house in a city called Hoi An in Vietnam. And these ladies who, some were deaf, some were mute, they came together, created this beautiful space. And I left and I said, I'm going to set up a silent tea house in Clapham in London. And then two minutes later, I realised um, I, I don't like tea. I hate Clapham. I don't like silence. This is going to fail very, very quickly. <laughs> so, um, so then um, anyway, the, the, the idea for Change Peace came very quickly. It's I knew I could, through my own investments in property, I knew I could find a way to provide housing for people who are homeless. The housing part, surprisingly, is actually the easier part. The challenge is... Uh, how you make that sustainable. So rather than somebody who's homeless being reliant on, on on benefits, on somebody else's support, how about finding a way where they have employment and they have their own self-worth, self-dignity, self-confidence, they're part of a team, they have purpose, and they sustain their own housing through the private renter sector, which we then support them into. And was it that you wanted to launch a business that made a difference, a social enterprise, or did the homelessness come first? That was an issue that was important to you. Yeah, great question. So we're not a 
coffee business that trying to do good and and on the side we're a charity and a social not for social enterprise set up to tackle homelessness through coffee if you see the distinction and some of the projects that we've launched since then you might have seen on on tv these buses where we have dental services in partnership with a well-known dental company providing dentist services to rough sleepers because 15 percent of homeless people try to pull out their own teeth out of sheer pain so it's it's really around using the revenue we generate from coffee profits selling our coffee into airlines into gyms into corporates in into downing street for example uh, that we generate the profits from that that then goes back into lifting people out of homelessness and what did the people in your old job think firstly my parents thought i was crazy and begged me not to do it and then my friends part of my friends actually some of them were you know saying i should keep doing what i was doing and and some were completely understanding and and really have now gone in to do similar things in the future i mean so the social enterprise economy in the uk is the envy of the world i mean we've had the UAE royal family come to the UK to see what we do, the Deputy Prime Minister of Thailand, and now it's it's such a key part of our UK economy. Give me a sense of, of what you've managed to do then in terms of the number of people you've managed to help, how many homeless people are you helping, how many people are you employing? So we support the equivalent of 5% of the UK's rough sleeping population out of homelessness per year. And we're a tiny company. Wow. That's phenomenal. And it's just done through employment. So typically 700 uh, to 800 people a year. Uh, and and when we look at what lifting people out of homelessness looks like, it isn't just a, a bit of training here. We're looking at how can we sustainably, if somebody leaves us after six months, have they sustained employment and have they stayed out of homelessness? That's our key measure. You know, the, the other measure really is that 44% of people who are homeless want to work and can work. Our mission is to find that 44% and give them a way out of homelessness through jobs. So they're not waiting on a waiting list somewhere somewhere for a home or accommodation, but they're doing it through their own means. And do you provide them with the housing or how does that work? Put yourself in a situation with someone who's been out on the streets for two to eight years. We've now given them an opportunity and we're paying them a London living wage or a living wage anywhere in the country. So you've gone from earning nothing to £23,500 in London. So it's quite a big jump. So they need support in that journey, both mentally and, and managing that process. But within 10 days of them joining us and joining our team, we then support them into housing. The way that we do that is they will go to a landlord typically with our payslip and say, I've now got employment, please provide me with accommodation. The landlord will say, well, where's your references? Where's your deposit? And where's your first month's rent? And they don't have any of that. So what we do is we, we, we know that that person is an employee of ours. We then directly approach the landlord and guarantee the rent directly to the landlord and then pay the landlord directly from that person's payslip. Typically after six months, that person has built up a track record of paying that rent through us directly to the landlord and they are able to um, to find accommodation anywhere else that they wanted if they wanted to leave. And the model really works. It's just fantastic to see how we've grown that from London to New York, Perth, and it really is a sustainable model of lifting people out of homelessness. It's an incredible thing. I mean, it's just incredible hearing you talking about it. But I am wondering if you ever find it frustrating that you you picking up the slack on something that maybe the, the, the government should be addressing? Over time, a very small part of me feels that way, and that's probably 1%. It's just exciting. The overriding feeling is excitement that you can take a problem which most governments tend to struggle with and, and, and look, at it, look at it differently and approach it differently, and it actually works. Um, 
that's the overriding feeling. And I think the, the more we've developed as an organisation, we've started to be commissioned by local councils, by DWP, for example, and realising that actually the model that we have and we, we, we do a standard can be commissioned, which could then increase to a much larger level of impact. So that's the journey we're on at the moment. And I think it's partly just doing your part tackling social problems I think is exciting and we we tend to recruit a lot of people from the corporate world and they join us with that excitement you know knowing that they can apply their commercial knowledge and expertise into something that's delivering social good and that's so that's the overriding feeling it's using our knowledge from business to apply it into social impact. What do you think is the wider lesson for businesses more generally Jamal? The power to be able to deliver social change through Procurement spend is incredibly exciting. As I said before, we supply coffee into airlines, into government, into gym, train networks. And and by them, as long as the, the quality of the product, the price of the product and the convenience to purchase is as good as the non-impact alternative and the social impact is a bonus, then why not make that change? And we're seeing corporates... All over the world, you know, I mean, I would just be mentioning household names who are converting their spend from everything from coffee to toilet paper to AV equipment to, you know, construction equipment with social businesses. And, and, and that's why really the UK is really leading the way in that charge. So, so, so really speaking to corporates and telling them that they have a responsibility to make that decision from the top down for their employees, for their customers, for society at large is a real fast track way for us to deliver social change. Let me ask you a question, Jamal. My wife is is constantly saying that she can't have coffee after 11 in the morning or she won't sleep that night. Now, I feel like when I was growing up, people were always drinking coffee of an evening and, and, and going out to a restaurant and having a cup of coffee after a meal or on a date. Has coffee changed? Coffee hasn't changed, but actually, if anything, the level of caffeine in coffee that we drink today is actually slightly reduced. So what is wrong with these people? I'm, I, I mean, I'm one of those people, if I'm honest, if I drink coffee after 10 o'clock, I won't be sleeping at night. I could have a double espresso and go to bed 20 minutes later. <laughs> Can I ask a more obscure question, or not obscure, but more sort of nerdy question? What is the difference between a flat white and an Americano with milk? So uh, an Americano with milk has quite a lot of water. Um, so you have your espresso. Both would have a base of espresso. Mm. An Americano will then be topped up with water. And then a bit of milk, a splash of milk at the end. And then uh, a flat white, however, is still that base of espresso with a larger amount of milk without any of the water. And then a level above that is a latte. Uh, and a level above that is a cappuccino. I'm geeking back at you, Ed. So. <laughs> you, can, you can never out-geek this, man. <laughs> no, that, no yeah, I've been out-geeked. Jamal, uh, it's been great to speak to you. It's really great what you're doing. Thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure's all mine. Thanks for having me. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa, ho, ho, we're in the outro, ho, ho. Now, I've got some news to report, which is fresh from my uh, email exchange with Fuchsia Dunlop. Mm. I made hot and sour mushroom soup from her recipe book. Oh, wow, that's a big favourite of mine. And my wife really liked it. What did she say exactly? It was edible. No. Uh, she said, oh, I really like this. Aha. Uh-huh. Then uh, I think you're probably right the, then. The children didn't like it, but it was not, it's not children's sort of thing. No, they've got unsophisticated palates. Yeah. Should we thank our guests and be nice to them? We should. I'd like to thank our guests, Joanna Allen, Charles Conn and Jamal Ezell. 
Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer. Ably assisted and, in fact, deputised for, yes. uh, for some of this week's episode by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Racial content is on holiday. She is. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our eye dance. Ed Seed composed the music. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.